Deep Dot Web Goes Dark, new guidance on healthcare apps, and when is a kinetic response to a cyber attack deemed appropriate? These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. The Deep Dot Web Portal, which provided a guide to darknet marketplaces, has been shut down by the FBI and its alleged administrators arrested as part of an international operation. The portal provided links to a number of darknet markets, which are reachable only via the anonymizing tool browser, and such markets sell illegal narcotics, firearms, counterfeit currency, malware, stolen jewelry, stolen payment card data, and more. To tell us more is ISMG's executive editor, Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz. Deep.web, a portal to dark web markets, has gone dark. On Wednesday, the Justice Department unsealed an indictment against Tal Prekar, a 37-year-old Israeli citizen residing in Brazil, as well as Michael Fan, a 34-year-old Israeli citizen residing in Israel. They'd both been charged on April 24th in a one-count indictment by a federal grand jury in Pittsburgh on money laundering charges. On Monday, Fan was arrested in Israel, while Prehar was arrested at Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris while returning from Israel to Brazil. The U.S. federal indictment charges the two men with having owned and operated Deep.Web from October 2013 until last month. The Deep.Web portal provided links to a number of darknet market sites, .onion addresses, which are reachable only by using the anonymizing Tor browser. Such darknet markets sell weapons, drugs, abductions, stolen credit card data, and more. Deep.web listed the top markets as well as their availability and status. It also gave darknet marketplace users an easy way to access these sites. What might not have been obvious to casual observers, however, is that Deep.web allegedly received kickback payments for everyone they referred to a darknet market who then purchased goods. One cryptocurrency market researcher, who calls himself Caleb, says these kickbacks were typically worth 2% to 4% of a final purchase price. The U.S. Justice Department says the men earned more than $15 million from these kickbacks, which were automatically routed to cryptocurrency wallets controlled by the men, and then they allegedly laundered the funds by tumbling the coins to other cryptocurrency wallets, and finally transferring the funds to bank accounts they'd opened in the name of shell companies. Police in Brazil have said that one of the suspects, Tal Prihar, previously came to their attention in October 2018 when they executed a search and seizure warrant based on their suspicion that he had been committing the crime of child pornography. Police say that at that time, they seized Brazilian reals and foreign currency worth a combined total of 250,000 US dollars as well as computers and smartphones, which they subsequently analyzed using digital forensic analysis. The timing of the arrests are interesting. The cryptocurrency market researcher known as Caleb says that Prehar, who used the handle DeepDot, had received expedited Brazilian citizenship. That's important, Caleb said, because Brazil wouldn't have extradited a citizen to face money laundering charges in a foreign country. Hence, it's notable that U.S. authorities requested that French police detain the suspect while he passed through their country. The Deep.Web takedown and arrests 
follow an international law enforcement operation, which last week disrupted two of the world's most notorious darknet markets. The first was Wall Street Market, which is the world's second largest darknet market at the time. And the other was Silkety, also known as Valhalla Marketplace. The German Federal Criminal Police shuttered Wall Street Market, backed by support from Europol, the Dutch National Police, as well as multiple U.S. law enforcement agencies. German police also arrested three German nationals aged 22, 29, and 31 in late May, having monitored their activities since March. All are being held on suspicion of being administrators of Wall Street Market. Authorities say the alleged Wall Street Market administrators, perhaps spooked by other recent darknet market busts, appeared to be trying to cash out. In April, Wall Street Market vendors began reporting that Bitcoins worth $13 million being held in escrow by the site had become unreachable. Police said the administrators were attempting to conduct an exit scam in which they'd steal the Bitcoins for themselves and desert the site. As the arrests of the alleged owners and operators of Deep.Web and Wall Street Market and other sites demonstrates cryptocurrency using buyers and sellers who frequent darknet markets or allegedly profit from them might think they're operating anonymously. But in reality, when police seek to disrupt such operations, the promise of anonymity may prove illusory. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. If a healthcare provider develops its own applications that handle patient data, it must take critical steps to safeguard protected health information and ensure HIPAA compliance, according to privacy attorney Adam Green, a partner at Davis Wright Tremaine LLP in Washington. Adam was interviewed by Executive Editor Healthcare Info Security, Marion Kolbesuk McGee, this week, and discussed the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights recently issued guidance related to the transmission of patients' PHI via health apps, and the various scenarios for when a covered entity or an app vendor bears liability under HIPAA for breaches. Here's an excerpt from that interview. So they really need to look closely at what is the relationship between the covered entity or even a business associate like an EHR provider and the app developer. Specifically, is the app developer acting on behalf of the covered entity or the other business associate? I like to think of it as, is there a breach of contract, for example, if the app developer, for some reason, does not provide the app to one of the covered entity or business associates, patients, or plan members. So if a covered entity goes out and hires or just enters into some sort of contract with an app developer to make that app available to its population, that, especially if there'd be a breach of contract, for example, if for some reason the app developer refused to do so in an instance, that suggests that the app developer is acting on behalf of the covered entity and that HIPAA is going to apply and that a breach by the app developer would potentially be a breach that goes up to the covered entity. Now, in contrast, if there's no relationship between the covered entity and the app developer other than that there is an API interface or if the relationship is merely that they have 
agreed to transmit in information independently. So, you know, there's maybe some sort of data use agreement, something that sets the rules of the road, but neither party is acting on the other party's behalf, then this just confirms that that is not a business associate relationship under HIPAA. And so whenever you're doing contract terms between a covered entity and an app developer, you want to be really sensitive as to, you know, what is the nature of that contract? Are you creating a relationship where one is acting on behalf of the other? Because that's going to really dictate whether you need a business associate agreement in place and what the potential HIPAA liability is going to be. Finally this week, I had the opportunity to interview Rob Roy, a fellow at the Institute for Critical Infrastructure Technology, or ICIT, as it is more commonly known. The ICIT, and the micro-focus government solutions, have just put out a paper entitled Software Security is National Security, Why the US Must Replace Irresponsible Practices with a Culture of Institutionalized Security. The report explores systemic problems in the software security landscape and offers recommendations on how to improve application security. I asked Rob if it's the requirement for speed to market for many of today's connected devices that is behind much of the shoddy coding practices out there today, or if there are other factors, which went off on an interesting tangent about what would be an appropriate kinetic response to nation-state cyber attacks. Here's Rob. The speed to market is critical. And if you have, in most cases, if you have a decision to make between putting in a feature that will provide some level of value or fixing a problem that provides a feature to somebody versus securing the software, which, you know, people might not see the security of the software, right? It's the black box. They don't know how secure something is when they pick it up, when they use it, when they install a a home security video camera. They don't know quite what's in there, but they expect to be able to see the video when they bring up their app on their phone. That's what they expect. They don't care as much about the security that's embedded in it. Now that's at the consumer level. I'm more focused today on the enterprise because enterprise and governments provide services to millions and millions of people. And that's where I get the greatest fear is, is seeing the numbers of breaches attributed to software where uh, citizen data, security data, um, uh, sensitive mission data, state secrets are all being stolen as, as we've heard in, in multiple cases from an intellectual property perspective. We, we've seen the greatest transfer of wealth in world history over the past decade. And so those are the types of things that, are, that, that I fear. And the ability, quite frankly, let's just back up, on the adversarial side, the ease with which an adversary can, can get on the internet with a low cost device, a laptop, and receive free tools on the internet, cloud-based services for hacking, if you will, they can subscribe to cloud-based services and go out there and hack at will. And there's no, you know, there's no mutually assured destruction like we had with, uh, with uh, the nuclear era where there was a huge penalty for hacking. Um, uh, although we did see one this week in the, in, uh, in, in the IDF blowing up a building that was housing some uh, Hamas uh, cyber activity that was trying to attack uh, Israeli assets. That's the first sort of like, repercussion that we've seen to cyber activity 
And if we see more of that happen, I think we will start to see a lot more of the, the state-sponsored types of activities start to go down. That's interesting. I mean, that, that, that is, I, I think, one of the first kinetic responses to cyber activity, which is, um, again, that's an interesting observation. But, but clearly, that's not a solution that is globally possible either, I, I would suspect. Oh, absolutely not. No, no, no. And, and you know, to... to to kind of caveat that, right, we have seen in the U.S. and the Department of Defense and the State Department um, some of the strategies, you know, that there was over the past decade, there have been um, discussions around the appropriate use of kinetic activity to cyber activity. And it usually has to do with, you know, if you are causing physical harm to the citizens of a country, then that's equivalent to a kinetic kind of a response. And we reserve the right to, you know, respond in kind. That's usually what it what it comes down to. That's it for this week's ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time.